Take your Bibles, if you would, go to uh, Romans chapter 9, and uh, we're going to make the valiant attempt today to complete the entire chapter, <laughs> Lord willing. So I know, I know, everyone's scoffing, I hear, because uh, I, I have like a three-verse limit or something like that, but we're going to do our best to get through the whole chapter today, and... Um, I just wanted to make a couple of other comments before we read uh, just our introductory paragraph today. I want to say, first of all, that um, we, we praise the Lord for you guys and uh, you who are here. You who are here earlier and there are those uh, attending via the Internet, etc. We pray for you regularly. We praise God for you. And um, we praise the Lord for your regular giving. We've talked about missionaries this morning. And um, the support that we send to missionaries relies upon regular generous giving. And you have done so. So we appreciate that. And just wanted to uh, make the reminder that the, the way we're giving in this, in this time is that we have a box in the back of the auditorium here. And there's a plate in the foyer as well. Uh, you can give online um, or using the app if you want to as well. But uh, we encourage you to continue that direction. We praise God that you have done so to this point. Uh, we have been able to maintain our commitment with our missionaries, no problem. We've been able to maintain other uh, regular help and giving in other contexts, no problem, because God has generously provided for those things through you. And so we praise God for you. Also, um, just wanted to comment, we have the Hatfields here, and that's a, 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 a great blessing. It was about 27 or 28 years ago, I can't remember which year it was, when uh, Joyce taught me how to share the gospel right back there, just right about where Rochelle's desk is right now. It was a different room at the time, and um, we had a class in there on how to do evangelism and how to share the gospel. And uh, so what a, what a blessing to uh, be able to make that connection again. So we pray for you guys regularly. We love you guys and, uh, and ask God's blessing for you. You have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9, and I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter right now. I just want to read these opening few verses, starting in chapter 9 and verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do humble ourselves before you right now, recognizing that you alone are God, that you are infinite and eternal and holy and good, that you are our creator. We owe you our very existence. And you are patient with us. Though we have fallen into sin and rebellion against you as a race, yet you have been patient. And not only have you endured our rebellion and not destroyed us uh, immediately as you could have, 
more than that, you have sent your son as a redeemer to redeem us, to save sinners, to rescue those who are in rebellion against you and make them your own children. And so we praise you for Christ. We praise you for this redemption. We praise you for your patience toward us and for your saving work in Christ. And Father, as we come to your word now, and we come to a passage that for many is difficult, maybe difficult to understand or maybe difficult to swallow. Father, I pray that you would be at work in this time this morning. That you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. May we understand what you have written here. May we believe what you have written here. And may we come to love what you have written here. So we commit ourselves to you and we ask that you would do your work even in this brief time we have together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're attempting to cover all of chapter 9 today. And that is no small feat. Uh, But there's a a reason for doing so, and that is that I want to give an overview. I want to look at the big map of what we're covering today so that uh, sometimes we can we can get focused in on a little piece and we can forget the surrounding uh, contours and context. And it's important for us when we're going into a chapter that is relatively difficult or maybe extremely difficult that we need to understand the lay of the land. We need to know what we're talking about. And so today, the intention is to cover all of chapter 9 to give that lay of the land, to see where we are in the book, to see what Paul is trying to accomplish at this time. And then, uh, Lord willing, later on, we will go back through and inch through it a little bit more slowly and look at the details and maybe answer some objections, maybe maybe deal with alternative uh, interpretations, etc. But, but uh, that will require more time. And so today... The goal is to uh, put this discussion in its context, in the context of Romans and what Paul has been saying. And uh, I will do my best to be disciplined, to hold off on rabbit trails, to hold off on answering objections, to hold off on chasing down those little things that I would like to say and like to do. And maybe in your own mind, you're going to be uh, you're going to have to be disciplined as well. That when, a, when uh, questions come to your mind, when you maybe have objections, but what about this or I've heard this or whatever, write those things down so that you can keep them in your mind and you won't continue to think about them and miss the rest of the sermon. <laughs> and so it's going to take some discipline on my part and on yours. And then as we go back through and we inch through the chapter, chances are very good that I will hit that question. I will hit that objection. And if when the time comes, I don't, Ask me. Come and ask me. You can email me. You can come in and see me and, uh, and bring that up if I didn't address it. But today we just don't have time to do those things. We're trying to cover the whole lay of the land. And so in our effort to do so, we need to put chapter 9 in its context. And, of course, 9 comes after 8. And uh, the chapter divisions in your Bible and the verse divisions in your Bible that are extremely helpful because I just told you to open to Romans 9, and you did. There you were. We didn't have to wrestle around, what does that when he says this? But those are not inspired. 
The verse and chapter divisions didn't come until about the middle of the 16th century. And so um, they were not written by Paul. He didn't write the number nine and then continue on. Okay. So in order for us to understand the context, we need to understand that the context may go beyond the chapter. And that is going to be the case of what we're doing right here. Back in Romans chapter uh, eight and verse 28, we read one of the most encouraging verses that could probably ever exist. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That, that He is working everything out for the good of His children. That, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. And, and that will get you through many a difficult time. But, but how can that be true? How can that actually be true that God is causing all things to work together for good when there are many things that happen in your life that are just awful. The thing is not good. The thing that happens is bad. How can it be that he is working it for good? Well, he continues in verses 29 and 30, and he describes the most important thing to us, which is our very salvation. And he describes in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 8 how God has been at work accomplishing your redemption from before you existed. That he foreknew you, that he predestined, that he then in time called you to be his own, and then he justified you. And then in the end, he will glorify you, that God has been at work from the beginning to the end, accomplishing your salvation and everything required for it, including your sanctification and including ultimately your glorification. God has been at work accomplishing those things for you. And so these Hard things of life are actually just a part of God fitting you for heaven. It's a part of God accomplishing that large purpose from before time to after time that he's accomplishing on your behalf. And so that's how he can do it. And so in light of that, we looked last week at this great crescendo of praise that, that, uh, and encouragement at the end of chapter 8 there. We, we saw that uh, since God is for us, in, in such a massive way, God is for us. Since that's the case, all possible opposition fails. It just fails. Come what may. Come nuclear bomb. It fails. Because God is working all things for your good to conform you to the image of His Son. That God who gave His own Son... He's not going to skimp on something less, on paying something lesser. He already paid the ultimate price. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will, of course, freely give us all things required for our salvation, required for our sanctification, required for our glorification. And so no one could bring a charge against God's elect because God has already justified us. And nothing could condemn us since Jesus already paid the price. He already paid the price all the way to death. And then he was raised from the dead. God said, I accept that payment. And then Jesus ascended to be with the Father. And where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? He's at the position of all authority, of all rule. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. Could there be something to come against us and condemn us with that setup? No. Not even possible. Nothing, in short, nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Christ. 
No suffering, no enemy, no power, no created thing could drive a wedge between you and the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not even death itself, not even any curveball that life throws you can come between you and the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Paul finishes up chapter 8 with this this huge mountain of praise and of encouragement and of comfort. And then he thinks for a moment. Paul's mission, if you remember through the book of Acts, what Paul normally did, I mean, Paul himself is Jewish, and he, when he showed up to a new town, he would go to the synagogue, and he would preach in that synagogue until they ran him out, which happened, and sometimes he made it a couple of weeks, sometimes a little more, a little less, but then when he left, he would go to the Gentiles, and he would preach to the Gentiles, and he would have a, a, a big reception, a great reception amongst the Gentiles. And so Paul, in thinking about this love of God for us in Christ Jesus, is thinking about the Christians who have benefited from that. And he's thinking the majority of those Christians are Gentile. Why are there so few Jewish believers? How can that be? Why is that the case? And so with that question in mind, we come to the problem. The problem is that Christ has been rejected by the Jews. So if all of these great riches and this bounty and this hope and all of this at the end of chapter 8 is there, Paul's thinking about, well, but there are so few Jews who are benefiting from this. And so we see in verses 1 through 3 his personal anguish, Paul's personal anguish over this situation, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You hear Paul's heart? Paul's a Jew. He grew up amongst Jews. He's related to Jews. He loves the Jews. They're his people. They're his kinsmen according to the flesh. And his heart is broken. His heart is broken to the point where he could say, I could wish that I myself were accursed if that, mean they, if that would mean they were saved. His, he's all invested in this. This is, this is the picture of his heart. And I think it's important for us as we're looking at all of chapter 9, and particularly as we're, as we're thinking, maybe we have experience with chapter 9. Maybe we've, we've read it, we've discussed it, we've, uh, we've uh, argued about it maybe, we've had um, questions that have come up or objections, or maybe we've avoided it because of its reputation. It has a reputation maybe for being hard-nosed. It says hard things here in chapter 9. Maybe even uh, some might think cold-hearted things. And that can be the reputation that, that Romans 9 can have for people. But I want to I point out that there is no ground for that. that. That way of characterizing Romans chapter 9, Paul starts it with tears on the page because he loves them that much. This isn't just Paul uh, you know, discussing with eggheads in some ivory tower somewhere, some doctrinal issue out there 
This matters. And it matters to him. And he's weeping about it. He says, I have unceasing anguish over this. His heart is broken for his fellow Jews who have rejected their Messiah and are separated from God, separated from the blessings of salvation. And he continues through the chapter or through the paragraph here and he's t- he says the Jews have rejected Christ despite their unparalleled blessings. He says, verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They have such incredible blessings. Every possible advantage that could be had is theirs. The adoption. Did you know that Israel is called God's son? They've been adopted as his son. They have the adoption. They have the glory the things that they've seen, the way God has worked. They have the covenants. They have the giving of the law. The temple worship. There's nothing like that. The promises. The patriarchs are theirs. And according to the flesh comes the Christ, who himself is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so what's the problem? If these are the blessings that they have, why is it that they in large reject their Messiah? That's the question that he is asking. Have have the promises failed? Has God's word failed? And that's the question that's being addressed. That's what's That's what's at issue in Romans chapter 9. Have God's promises failed? Has God's word failed? Well, that's the question. That's the problem. That's what's being set up. Well, he's going to address it. And his first response there is he said he he, he highlights for us God's sovereign right. The question asked was, have God's promises failed? Has his word failed? And his answer is a very emphatic It is not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6. No. No, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises stand. But then he continues. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The promise is not for all the descendants. It never was. The problem is not in the promise itself, as if the promise is failing. The question is about who's the recipient, who is designed to be the recipient of that promise. And he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, being the physical offspring of Abraham does not immediately qualify 
a person to be a recipient of the promise. And going all the way back to the beginning, we saw that was the case, that the, the, the words quoted there, that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why is that important? Well, Abraham had two sons initially, one and then two, and there are others in there too. But he had more than one son is the point. Was the promise for every offspring, every child, every son even of Abraham? No. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not Ishmael. Not Ishmael. So a selection is made, a promise is made that, no, it's not the entire lineage of Abraham who are to be the recipients of this promise. It's actually a portion. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Isaac is the child of promise. He's the one who's to be the recipient of that. And then he gives a couple of other examples from the patriarchs. Look at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So I've already said that Abraham had a first son, Ishmael. And that son was alive at the time when this promise was made. Remember when God visited Abraham and he says, I'm going to come again in about a year. And when I do, there'll be a son. She will have a son, Sarah, will have this son of promise. And, and so the promise will go to him. The promise will not go to Ishmael. Ishmael was passed over and the promise instead was given to the second son because Ishmael was not the child of promise. And we see that continue down in verses uh, 10 and following. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So you might think about that original situation with Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, that, that well, maybe God all along meant for the promised son to come through Sarah, right? And so, so the, the, servant, uh, the, the servant girl didn't count. And so Ishmael didn't count because it didn't go the right way. And so, so of course, Isaac is the child of promise because that was through the, appro- the appropriate union, the, the appropriate wedding between Abraham and Sarah, that uh, joining together. But then when you come to the second one, it doesn't make as much sense. Jacob and Esau, another generation, Jacob and Esau were conceived in exactly the same moment. There's not a different lineage of any sort that you can appeal to. You can say, because of Ishmael, well, his parentage wasn't quite right. Almost, but not quite. But with Jacob and Esau, you can't say that. Because their, their parentage, their lineage is identical. They were in the same womb at the same time. They were the result of the same union. And one is chosen over the other. God's purposes of election were at work even in them. While they were in the womb, not yet having done anything good or bad, God was already at work having selected one and not the other. And this this election, this selection, wasn't the result of any works, good or bad. They were still in the womb. 
they hadn't done anything. Their lineage was identical and their track record was identical. They had done nothing, either good or bad. And so God makes his choice. And why, uh, based upon what, does he make his choice? It was based on him who calls, meaning the criterion or criteria are inside God himself, that God makes his choice for his purposes. It's not that he looked at one little boy and said, ah, I'm sorry, that's, something's not quite right. I'm going to choose this one instead. There's nothing resident within the objects that he chooses. It's because of God's choice. And he doesn't tell us what those criteria are. He doesn't let us in on what goes on inside of him that would cause him to elect some and not others. He doesn't tell us. But he does tell us it's not resident within the object. Because of him who does or him who wills. But it's in God himself. While still pregnant, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. So even while the twins were still in the, room, in the womb, she was told what was going to happen. It wasn't based upon anything they had done, but it was based upon God's own purposes. And in that state, with the, with the babies in the womb, she was told this very difficult statement. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now those are words that actually are written much later, but about this incident. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Those words are awful. They strike us as discordant, but they're not. What, what, should, what should strike us about these words is not Esau I hated. What should strike us about these words is Jacob I loved. If, if we understand, biblically speaking, who God is, how holy He is, how exalted He is, how pure He is, how separate from sin He is, and how much He hates sin, if we understand that, it will amaze us anytime God says He loves anyone. Whom He loves, He loves not because they are lovely. God's love is amazing, that he would show his love, that he would shine his love, that he would gift Jacob with his love is due to nothing resident within Jacob himself. And so when we hear these words, we need to think about them in a slightly different light that Esau was a conceived in rebellion. As God's enemy. And so was Jacob. A rebel from conception. With that sin nature. Already at enmity with God. Because of being Adam's child. And therefore a worthy object of hatred by God. But God doesn't. He loves him. So what's the point? What is his point right here the point is that the promise that God made to Abraham wasn't a blanket promise that covered every person coming from Abraham we see how well in one generation it excludes Ishmael through Isaac shall your 
seed be named, shall your offspring be named. But then even when it comes to the next generation with Jacob and Esau, what happens at that point? A selection made. It's not even all the descendants of, of Isaac, but only half, only Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. So God was making choices from the very beginning of which descendants he was establishing the line that would be those who receive his blessing from the very beginning. So it shouldn't be new to us. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that God makes choice. He has done so from the very beginning of Abraham's people. God has been making choices and his basis for doing so is not resident within the person himself. But why? What's the purpose? We see all of this happened in verse 11 in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Where's the reason? It's within God. Where's the purpose? It's within God. It's not within the objects. So, Paul has been doing ministry a long time. He's dealt with objections his whole life, and particularly his whole Christian life, his whole ministry. And so he knows there are going to be objections raised. And he's smart enough to know where they are. And he's, he's, he's probably not just imagining He's probably remembering and writing down what those objections are because he's had this conversation before. And, and so in our chapter, he deals with a couple of objections. My challenge to you and what I want you to think about as we're doing this is as you're listening to this, as you're hearing what, what Paul is saying here, listen to the objections that come up in your own heart, in your own mind. And then pay attention to see if those are the very objections Paul raises in the words of his opponent. The objections will help us see where we are in this conversation. So pay attention to your objections. Are you objecting against Paul? Are you agreeing with his, his uh, objector, his opponent? And so we come to our first objection that we have here. Verses 14, uh, the first part of verse 14 there, we have the first objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul, this argument you're making, this doctrine you're presenting makes God unjust. This makes God unjust. If, if God chose one twin over another twin when they were both still in the womb, they hadn't done anything at all. If God could declare at that moment that one unborn infant would be hated and humbled and the other unborn infant would be loved and served, that's just wrong, Paul. Doesn't that make God unjust? Well, Paul's answer is, by no means. By no means. How can he say that? How can he say that? That that objection may sound legitimate. What kind of justification can he give for God's electing choice in the case of two unborn twins? How can he do that? Well, we see answer number one, Begins at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The first answer is God shows mercy to whom he wills. That's his choice. That's a quote from Exodus. This, this isn't something new. This is a quote from, from way back. The selection of 
Who will be the objects of God's mercy, the objects of His compassion? It's determined within God Himself. He freely chooses to whom He will show mercy and to whom He will show compassion. He makes it even, uh, puts a sharper point on it in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The person who receives mercy was not chosen because of any willing or any exertion, any effort, anything he willed, anything he chose, anything he did but entirely because God chose to show him mercy. That's the first answer, is that God shows mercy to whom he wills. But we have a second answer given to that same objection in verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God chooses for his own reasons. Pharaoh is an excellent example of God's sovereign election. He raised Pharaoh up in the book of Exodus to be his opponent, to stand against him, to stand against his people. He stood him up. He raised him up for this purpose, that he might defeat him, that God might defeat and overthrow and destroy Pharaoh and thereby show his power and show his might. For this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How does that happen? By the destruction of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up by God so that God could display his power in defeating him. And Paul pulls together the argument in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. The reason for showing mercy and the reason for hardening is resident entirely within God himself. That's what he's saying. They are his sovereign choices to make for his own purposes. But that raises an objection, doesn't it? If the decision resides within God himself, if he alone makes that decision, how could he hold us accountable for anything? That's the next objection that Paul raises, that, Paul, this removes human responsibility. You've removed human responsibility. And that, you see that objection in verse 19, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God shows mercy or hardens based not upon merit, not upon will, not upon exertion, but purely based upon his sovereign choice, then how can God blame us for our faults? How can that be, Paul? If his sovereign will extends even to the human heart, then how can he hold us responsible for anything? That's the question. That's the objection that is raised. Look at verse 20 to see Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? His first answer is, he's the potter and we are the clay. The answer he gives here is both an answer and a rebuke. There's a rebuke inherent in what he says here. I've ministered a number of years with youth, and I have plenty of my own children, and I'm I'm aware that there comes a time when you need to put somebody in his place. And it's usually a teenage boy. (laughs) Not always, not always, but usually it's a teenage boy. And in my years of ministry, I've found that there are a couple ways you can deal with that, and one one may be more fun than the other. Sometimes I have wrestled the poor lad to the ground and, and submitted him. And I, I see Mike Yoey over here who's done that to me, lo, these many years past, possibly. So that, that's fun sometimes. Um, and depending on how big the kid is, sometimes it might be a risk for me anyway. So, but there is a better way and there's a more efficient way for you to do it. And this is more the way my dad would use with me. To look at me and say, young man, And that's all it took. And I would remember, oh yeah, I'm dealing with my father. That's right. He's the dad. And I'm the kid. And I'm, you know, 16, 17, feeling my oats or whatever, but that's my dad. So when he says, young man, my legs start to sweat. And sometimes we need to be put in our place. And that's exactly what happens in this situation right here. The original... The, the, the Greek text here kind of is switched around in, uh, at least in ESV. The ESV says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The original says, O oh man, who are you to answer back to God? Young man, who do you think you're talking to? So there is inherent within this answer, both an answer and a rebuke. That here we are, a creature of the dust, made from dirt. Our lifespan is about that big and we're about that strong. Calling God out on the carpet. Calling our Creator, the one who made us, on the carpet. As if He has to answer to us. As if the God of all things has to answer to me. Oh, man, who are you to answer back to God? And so that's the first part, is that rebuke that he gives right there. That that goes right to that heart of the, the distinction that we have to keep in mind between who is the creator and who is the creature. That we are creation. We are the result of His work. And He is beyond us. He is infinite. He is the Creator. And there is a distinction. And there does not come a time when the creation, the creature, calls the Creator to account for His choices. He says, we are the clay. And we're answering back to the potter and saying, why did you make me like this? You should have done this or that. Oh, man. 
Who are you to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Has the creator no right over the creation to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course he does. Of course he does. And so that's his first answer. But there's a a second answer that he gives. He continues in verse 22. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make uh, make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The second answer he gives to that objection is, God also desires to show wrath and power. God does not only desire to show mercy. Wrath is a part of His character. Wrath against sin is a natural part of who He is. It's an extension of His holiness. And when His holiness interacts with sin, wrath is the result. And so He not only desires to show mercy, it's also good and right for the holy God to display His wrath to display His power. And He has chosen certain vessels. He as the potter has chosen certain vessels who will be the objects, will be the ones in which He demonstrates that wrath and that power. And for those objects that He so chooses, that He has prepared beforehand, He allows them to continue in their own innate rebellion against God. He removes His prohibition of them. He removes His... His governing of them. And He lets them have it their way. Just as we read back in Romans chapter 1 that this thing happened and so God handed them over. And they spiraled down even further. And and then God handed them over even further and they spiraled down. That's what Romans 1 is about. The second half anyway. Is God removing that restraining. And for these, He removes that restraining. They spiral ever downward. And he, it's fascinating, it's, it's amazing, it's, it's instructive when we think about God's heart in all of this, has endured those vessels, those rebellious, uh, rebellious ones, he has endured with much patience their rebellion. He could destroy them immediately for their rebellion, but he doesn't. He endures with patience. He allows it to continue. He allows them to continue slapping Him in the face, rebelling against His rule and His authority. He he endures with patience as they hate His name, as they worship idols. And He endures. Why does He endure? Why does He endure with such patience? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, God is patient. He's patient. If you learn nothing else from the Old Testament, you should learn this, that God is, God is patient. We read sometimes about the, the uh, events of destruction or judgment that came upon the nation of Israel or even other nations surrounding them, and we think, oh, that was awful. That was pretty harsh. I mean, it seems really harsh that this destructive thing would happen, that, that they, their city would be destroyed and the temple would be leveled. They'd be, they'd be carted off to another country. Or That seems really harsh until you realize God had been sending prophets telling them to repent for centuries already. It wasn't as if God showed up on the scene and they were 
caught in the middle of the first time they ever disobeyed and God judged them and destroyed them. He warned them and he warned them and he warned them for decades and for centuries. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. And he is patient even with these. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason. While he's enduring their rebellion, he is also busy gathering for himself those who are the objects of mercy. He is redeeming people along the way. So he's allowing them to continue in their hatred of him, to continue in their rebellion, to continue standing against him and fighting against him at every turn. He allows that to happen, and he is redeeming people along the way because he, he wants to demonstrate his mercy to objects of mercy as well. And so he puts up with their rebellion. There will be a time when they, when they receive the, the wrath and judgment that they deserve, but he puts up with it so that he can redeem those who were the objects of his mercy. And this, these objects of his mercy, that's the us that we found back in, in the end of chapter 8, where who will separate us? No one will separate us. He who gave his own son for us, how will he not also freely give all things to us? That's the us that he's been talking about. And so he continues and picks up that same notion here in verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God's plan from the beginning to show his grace where he will. His plan from the beginning was to bring Gentiles in. And so Paul agonizes over the fact that there are so few Jews believing and so many Gentiles believing. He's not, he's not angry about the Gentiles believing. He's sad about so few Jews believing. But his point is, this isn't anything new. It was already talked about centuries before in Hosea, where Hosea said this was going to happen. Those who are not my people, I will make them my people. That is the Gentiles. Those who were not loved, that is the Gentiles, I will call them beloved. I'm going to bring them in. And so the inclusion of the Gentiles has been God's plan all along. But, but why so few Jews included? This is what Paul is agonizing over is so few Jews included, so few Jews being saved. And that's the question that started our chapter. And he's coming back around to the same thing. And he picks up that theme in verse 27. He says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. See, Paul is, Paul is terribly saddened by the, how few Jews are believing. But he's not surprised by it. Because he's read Isaiah. And he knows what Isaiah was saying. Isaiah's saying there, look, the, 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 there are millions of the people of Israel. There are millions of Jews. But only a remnant, only a few will be saved. And he says, even, even more than that, he says, if it were not for God working, despite the fact that there are millions of Jews, despite that fact, if it were not for God working to redeem a people for himself, there would be none redeemed. There would be none to remain. 
If they were left to themselves, they would end up like Sodom and Gomorrah with no generations following, utter destruction, judgment. But God did work. And God did redeem for himself a people for his own possession, even out of the nation of Israel. So it's not surprising to Paul. It's agonizing and it's painful, but it's not surprising that so many Gentiles would be included and there would be so few Jews. God had prophesied this. This is the way God is working. And he's going to explain much more for us in chapter, uh, in chapter 11 why this is the case. But for here, he just makes the ar- argument and says, the prophets told us this would happen. The prophets told us this would happen. And so the question at the beginning of the chapter was, why so few Jews? Why so few Jews? And the answer that he comes to in the end is because in these last several verses, God had said this would happen. This was his plan from the beginning. It's not just that he observed that it was going to. This is the result of his sovereign electing choice. It always has been. From Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac to Jacob and Esau and even today. It's the result of God's electing choice. And so we come to the end of the chapter. The last paragraph, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says in summary, they were offended by the rock of offense. Why are there so few Jews? Because they were offended by the rock of offense. Well, how did that work out? What, what's, what's the cause? What, what, what went on here? Well, it's because they... They looked for a righteousness of the law. They pursued the law, a law that would lead them to righteousness, but they did so as if it were based on works, as if the law gave them the way they could accomplish righteousness before God. And when they would try to do that, They would try to obey God's law. They would fall flat on their face. And they would stand up and dust themselves off and keep working, keep trying. That's what they were doing. And he says here, they stumbled over the cornerstone. They were were busy trying to lay a cornerstone, trying to lay a foundation for their own faith, for their own salvation that was based upon their works, based upon righteousness from the law. And while they were busy doing so, they kept tripping over something. And that was the cornerstone that was already there, which is Christ. They never realized when they fell flat on their faces, I can't do this. My righteousness is inadequate. I require the very righteousness of God to satisfy God. I can't do it. So I'm going to stop trying to lay my own foundation and I'm going to look to Him instead. That is faith. That is faith. And so they were busy stumbling over the the cornerstone that was there, the cornerstone that was already laid, which is Christ himself. And they missed, secondly, righteousness by faith. They never understood 
They never understood. I have to have perfect righteousness before God. And I cannot achieve that. Now, when I say they and never understood, there, of course, was always a remnant. We've already talked about the remnant of those who did believe from the very beginning. Those who did understand this, they didn't stumble over the stone of uh, the, the cornerstone. They believed when they fell on their faces, they looked to God and they cried out to him. And they were redeemed, but for the most part, they did not. And so the righteousness that we need is a righteousness that is by faith. So that in the last, uh, the last line of our chapter here, whoever believes in him, in Christ, the cornerstone, will not be put to shame. How can you establish righteousness with God? Not by your own obedience to the law. You can't do it. You can't do it. The law requires things of you you will not give. So you can't do it. But Jesus Christ himself has done it. He himself came onto the scene as a man and obeyed perfectly. Was perfectly righteous in his life. And more than that, went to the cross to pay the penalty for your and my unrighteousness. Was put to death, was raised, and now is at the right hand of the Father. And when we put our faith in him, which is the point here, when we put our faith in him, he becomes our cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone for our faith, for our salvation, for our life. So we have, that's the first point of application as we come to the end of our passage here, is that salvation is impossible by works. No one could work harder than the Jews worked. No one could work harder than Paul worked. Blameless according to the law. No one could work harder than him. And it was inadequate for him. His righteousness by the law was inadequate. He himself needed the cornerstone. He himself needed Christ. And how much, how much more us? And so, if you're, if you're thinking that becoming a Christian or being a Christian involves acting like a Christian, doing these things and not doing these things, I, I want to tell you that is inadequate to prepare you to be in God's presence. That will not work. The cornerstone has already been laid. The righteousness has already been put there, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And if you will look to him and trust in him and his righteousness, you will not be put to shame. There's a second point of application here. As we've, as we've gone through this argument... And it's relatively involved here. There were a couple of objections raised, and I asked you at the beginning to pay attention to which objections you raised. But, Brennan, that sounds like... But, Brennan, that, that would mean... And if you found yourself agreeing with Paul's objector, then you're on the wrong side of this discussion. You're, you're understanding some things in an unbiblical way. And so as we proceed through this, we're going to take time and go through this with a fine-tooth comb, and we'll be able to answer those kinds of objections. But you, but you need to be aware, Paul. It, chances are very likely Paul is saying something here in Romans chapter 9. What he is saying, you don't like. My nature doesn't like. It's very possible that he's trying to correct things we believe. 
We need to be submitted together, all of us, to God's Word. What God's Word says, what God's Word teaches, we need to believe and we need to obey. We need to understand it and we need to walk accordingly. And so that's my commitment to you as we continue through Romans 9 and and on through the book. And that needs to be our commitment together as Christians. We need to go where Scripture takes us. So I encourage you. I went through this very quickly. I know it may not have seemed all that quick, but it was. Went through this very quickly. Didn't deal with objections. Didn't rate, Didn't chase all the rabbits that we could have. I want to. I'm a rabbit chaser. But we don't have time today. Write those things down. Think about those things. And as we go through it, I'll try and address them. If we don't, come talk to me about it later. But it's important that we be submitted to what God's Word says. God's saving purpose on behalf of His elect, which was mentioned all the way back in 8.28, is rooted in the sovereign plan of God to show mercy where He will and to show judgment where He will. In His own sovereign plan and for His own sovereign purposes, He hardens some and He shows compassion to others. And that choice isn't based on any willing or action on the part of the person, but on the choice of God. Man, for his part, does not have a platform to complain to God about that fact. We are clay complaining to the potter about the way he made us. It's inappropriate for us to do so. God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power, and thus he endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I know this is hard stuff. I know this is a deep passage. I know it deals with very difficult things, but this is one of those passages where you have the highest perspective possible. This, this happens a few times in Scripture, that, that you, you get a peek over what's going on in the whole of creation. Usually we live down and we can see what goes on around us sometimes. This is one of those passages where you see the whole thing that's going on and you can look all the way around and see what God is doing in the big, big picture. So of course it might be difficult for us to understand, but more to the point, it might be difficult for us to swallow what exactly it means that He is God. That he's the potter and that we're the clay. I love how this passage ends. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And he opens the door for the great discussion of chapter 10 about faith in Christ. Believing in him and what happens? We find salvation. We find peace with God. We find that we in Christ have been reconciled to Him. And so, this is just chapter 9. But even in chapter 9, which can be difficult, it's all based, rooted in the anguish that Paul feels for these unbelievers, these fellow Jews. And it concludes here with the statement that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, Uh, This is deep stuff. 
I don't know whether it's that it's hard to grasp with our minds as if it were complex or difficult in that way or just hard to swallow as a, as a creature whose initial rebellion was about wanting to be like God all the way back in the garden and we still carry that with us. But thank you that you speak truth to us in your word about, about who we really are and who you really are and how we can know you. Father, we, we submit to you and we submit to your word. We rejoice in your mercy and we pray that you would show it broadly. We pray that you would redeem vessels of mercy even today. That you would patiently endure the downward spiral of this world and evildoers and rescue sinners. Pray that you would do that even this morning. Father, we, we come away from this chapter with a very high view of you. That you really are God, sovereign over all things. That your will is the one that carries the day, not mine. That your actions carry the day, not mine. And I rejoice in that and find comfort. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these things, to submit to them, and that as a result, we would be those motivated to go and proclaim the gospel all around us, that you might use us even in redeeming other sinners just like us. I pray that you would help those who wrestle with this, who have had bad experiences with conversations or arguments on this topic. I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that each of us would be submitted to you and what you teach in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.